All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale, Sri Mati Bhakti Vinata Swami Vichy Namani. Namaste Saraswati Deve, Gauravani Pacharani, Nibhisesu Sindhani Paskutari Sindhani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shita Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadrutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitam Shah Vajra Pajivya Shakti Vasam Devita Pitsuyam Pavanavya Parashanashana Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Bhagavatam, Canto 6, Chapter 14, King Chitraketu's Lamentation. We're going to be reading texts 30 through 40, and we have 30 on the board. Sapitat Prasanadeva, Chitraketu Radharayat, Garbam Krita Dutir Devi. Kriti Kagneri Vatmajam. Sa, she, api, even, tat prasannat. By eating the remnants of food from the great sacrifice. Eva, indeed, chitraketo. From King Chitraketu. Adharayat, bor, garbam, pregnancy, Kritaduti, Queen Kritaduti, Devi, the goddess, Kirtika, Kirtika, Agne, from Agni, Eva, as Atmajam, a son. Shiva Prabhupada's translation. As Kirtita Devi, after receiving the semen of Lord Shiva from Agni, conceived a child named Skanda Kartikeya, Kritaduti, having received semen from Chitraketu, became pregnant after eating remnants of food from the yajna performed by Angira. So we see many instances in the Bhagavatam of some sort of assisted fertility system. Just like today, you know, if people cannot have a child naturally, there are so many different ways, right? Medicine has so many different ways that they can help people to have a child. 
So we see a similar thing going on in the Bhagavatam that uh, Chitraketu was not able to have a son, and so they had this kind of assisted reproductive technology. But it was based on mantras and subtle power and yagya rather than just a bunch of chemicals and surgery and things uh, We might wonder why Chitraketu was so anxious to have a son. And it is because it's the responsibility of a leader or a king to provide a successor. That's, that's part of the responsibility. Not that you retire and leave your kingdom and there's nobody to continue. So that's why we have this emphasis on dynasties of these kings. So we're going to go on. Text 31, we'll just read the translations. If I go too fast for anybody, or if there's some word I say you don't understand, please ask me. Okay? Is that okay? Yes? After receiving semen from Maharaj Chitraketu, the king of Shurasena, Queen Kritaduti gradually developed in her pregnancy, O King Pariket, just as the moon develops during the bright fortnight. Thereafter, in due course of time, a son was born to the king. Hearing news of this, all the inhabitants of the state of Shurasena were extremely pleased. So again, they're pleased not just because their king has a child, like we might be pleased that some friend of ours has a child, but they're pleased because they also want things to go on nicely. They don't want there to be a disruption in their governance. Chitraketu was especially pleased. After purifying himself by bathing and decorating himself with ornaments, he engaged learned Brahmanas in offering benedictions to the child and performing the birth ceremony. So here we have the samskaras, the different ritualistic activities in every civilized society for auspiciousness. And these things are not simply rituals. These ceremonies that are performed actually put us in harmony with the Lord and with all the demigods and with the material elements. In modern society, when we want things to be auspicious, we don't do these sort of ceremonies or rituals, and therefore things don't work out very well. Under the brahmanas who took part in the ritualistic ceremony, the king gave charity of gold, silver, garments, ornaments, villages. Villages means that they could keep the taxes from those villages. It doesn't mean that the brahmanas would rule the villages. So the king was ruling, or he had some subordinate ruler who was ruling, and he would say all the taxes from this village, or a portion of the taxes from this village, would go to a brahman. So villages, horses, and elephants, as well as 60 crores of cows, 600 million cows. So here we see that the government was supporting the intellectuals, the priests, the scholars, the poets, who generally are not interested in earning a livelihood in the ordinary sense, and therefore they're given in charity. We still see in many governments of the world where a portion of the tax money is given to some sort of church, and a portion of the tax money is given to schools. So this, this kind of principle is still going on to some extent. Is it possible to get a glass of water? As a cloud indiscriminately pours water on the earth, the beneficent King Chitraketu, to increase the reputation, opulence, and longevity of his son, distributed like rainfall all desirable things to everyone. So here we're going to see that this doesn't work. So the king is, is doing everything in his power 
to give his son an auspicious long life, but it doesn't work. And, of course, such is the condition of this world. We say, man proposes and God disposes. So we may do everything within our power for a particular material result, but the ultimate result is not in our hands. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do our duty. So we should still do our duty, but with detachment for the result. And here we're going to find King Chitraketu was not detached. He was doing all these auspicious things for his son, not simply out of duty for the kingdom and the citizens. He was doing that with great material attachment, which is going to cause him great suffering. So going on, when a poor man gets some money after great difficulty, his affection for the money increases daily. Similarly, when King Chitraketu, after great difficulty, received a son, his affection for the son increased day by day. So this principle also operates in transcendent attachment. Just like with Krishna, Krishna didn't appear to Devaki and Vasudeva as their first child, but which child? Which child was he? Eighth child. And what happened to the other children? They were killed. Except Balaram, who was transferred, but they didn't have him. So if you had all these children one after another and they're all murdered, and then you finally have a child who lives, your attachment for that child is going to be greater. A similar principle happens with the parents of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So first they had what? No, before that. Before they had Vishwarup. How many children did they have before Vishwarup? Nine, I think. And, and what they were daughters, nine daughters, and they all died. They all died very young. So then when Vishwarup was born and Mahaprabhu was born, their attachment was greater. Yes? Whenever there's something we have after difficulty, we may also wonder... Why, for us conditioned souls, Krishna does not generally award Krishna consciousness immediately. Prabhupada says it is possible, but generally that does not happen. So if we think about it, we are the ones, Bahirmukhe, we are the ones who rejected Krishna. However one wants to understand the process of our coming to the material world, whatever point of view one wants to take, we understand that we, the jiva, rejected Krishna. So, by working hard, making a lot of sacrifice and difficulty to regain him, uh, therefore we will value that more. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes? The mother's attraction and attention to the son, like that of the child's father, excessively increased. The other wives, seeing Kritiduti's son, were very much agitated, as if by high fevers, with a desire to have sons. So we have the word jwara, fever. So of course, Shitraketu should have noticed this. He should have made some note and taken care of everyone. He shouldn't have only taken care of Krithiduti. He should have been attentive to the other women that he was responsible for. This is the role of the king. The king is supposed to take care of all of the citizens. Just like our modern governments, 
they don't even take proper care of the humans, but they certainly don't take care of the animals and the trees and so forth. Yes, and even among the humans, they may take care of human beings who are wealthy more than those who are poor, or those who are of one race rather than those who are of another race. This kind of favoritism, it's very much condemned in a leader. This, any time that a leader has favorites like this and doesn't take care of everyone equally, there's going to be some very bad reaction. So as King Chitraketu fostered his son very carefully, his affection for Queen Kritaduti increased, but gradually he lost affection for the other wives who had no sons. So this again, is this is really extreme negligence on the part of the king. And again, we see this kind of phenomena happens in leaders. Uh, they take care of the people who are productive and the people who are not productive. They don't take care of them. Yes? Have we seen this? Right? People are healthy and they can work many hours and, or they give a lot of money. Then, uh, well, we take very good care of them. Somebody gets sick or somebody gets injured or they can't give a lot of money. We don't take care of them. When we were teaching uh, Sri Manashiksha here previously, one of the ways of self-deception which Raghunath Goswami compares to taking a bath in donkey urine and thinking you are getting clean, is if we uh, take good care of rich and famous people and we neglect the humble devotees. You know, thinking, well, the rich, famous people, they will contribute a lot and the humble devotees are not contributing. So, here Shitriketu is making the same mistake. He's taking care of the woman who's provided his heir and the other women he's responsible for, he's neglecting. The other queens were extremely unhappy due to their being sonless. Because of the king's negligence toward them, they condemned themselves in envy and lamented. Right, now we see a mistake being made by these women. So here they were being actually quite selfish, and they were concerned for their own happiness. This principle is very active in the material world, but in the spiritual world, it is absent. Just like we see this painting here, there's Radha and Krishna and their other gopis, and we see all of these other gopis, they're looking at Radha Krishna, and they're thinking, when Radha and Krishna are together, I am happy. They're not thinking, why is Krishna happy with Radha? Why doesn't he leave her and come to me? So this mood is very nicely explained by Krishna Das Kaviraj in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where he says that the gopis, they become happier when Krishna is enjoying with Radha than when Krishna is enjoying with them. And Radharani is happier when Krishna is enjoying with the other gopis instead of her, even a hundred million times happier. Now, of course, Krishna does not act like King Chitraketu. Krishna spends time with each of his devotees and each of them feel that I am Krishna's favorite devotee. Sanatana Goswami explains this. Each coward boy is thinking, I am Krishna's favorite. Right? Each blade of grass, each flower, Krishna has an, a relationship with everyone. It's not that Krishna's with Radharani and these other gopis are neglected like in Chitraketu did. But the mood of the pure devotees is very different from the mood of these queens. The mood of all of the devotees in Vaikuntha, not just the gopis, but all the residents of Vaikuntha, which is very beautifully explained in the third canto, is they glorify the service of the other devotees. 
and they're pushing for the other devotees to be with Krishna. So there's no malicious envy. These queens could have rejoiced in the happiness of Prithiduti and Chitraketu. It wasn't that because they were being neglected that they had to become envious. There's not a direct causal relationship there. This was a choice they were making. They could have thought how fortunate Kritaduti is. And now we're seeing if they really loved their husband, Jitraketu, if they actually loved their husband, they would be happy for his happiness, isn't it? Yes? They would feel that his happiness was their happiness. And to be very honest, if they had this mentality, he probably would have also been more inclined towards them. So not that he's not at fault here. He's, he's definitely, the king is, is severely at fault here. He's making a very grave mistake. But the queens are also making a mistake. You know, whenever we see somebody's happiness, if we become envious and we think, why aren't I getting that happiness? Then that person will be less inclined to be friendly towards us because we have an envious attitude toward them. This is just natural. And this is true in all of our human relationships. You know, if somebody distributes more books than we do or donates more money or something, and people are praying, oh, you've done so wonderful, we're thinking, why aren't I getting any praise? Why aren't I getting any glorification? But instead, if we think, how wonderful that this devotee is getting glorified, how wonderful, and we become happy in their happiness, then the way things work, the way the laws of nature work, the way that Krishna's reality works, is that then we will also feel satisfied. In fact, this principle of being satisfied by going for the satisfaction of others is the basic principle that delineates material from spiritual. Srila Prabhupada says the difference between material consciousness and spiritual consciousness is in material consciousness when someone else is happy, we become envious, and that's exactly what's happening. Spiritual consciousness it was this when someone else is happy, I become genuinely happy for their happiness. That is the difference. And that can be done by all of us in all of our relationships, whether it's in our marriages, with our children, with our parents, with the other devotees, with, with anybody. And this basic idea of envy that, you know, I hate others' happiness, especially if I don't have it. You know, if you become rich and I am still poor, then I hate you. Right? I mean, if you're rich and I'm rich, I am okay, as long as I'm a little richer. Okay? If I have a little bit more money, if my spouse is a little bit more beautiful, then that's okay. Uh, but this, this principle, of really, we need to root this out by practicing now, in this world, as devotees, to find happiness in others' happiness. To be sorrow in others' distress and to find happiness in others' happiness. Otherwise, if we are envious, we will suffer terribly. And, and these, these queens are about to really suffer. They're going to lose everything. They're, they're going to lose everything by this envy. It's going to be a very unfortunate situation for them. So Chitraketu is going to lose everything by his favoritism and his lack of taking care of everyone. Of course, he's going to get much back later on. And the queen, these queens who are envious, they're going to lose everything. It's a very, 
the, these stories in the Bhagavatam, they're not just about something that happened millions of years ago to some people that we can't relate to. But they're, they're about our, our reactions now. So text 40. A wife who has no sons is neglected at home by her husband and dishonored by her co-wives exactly like a maidservant. Certainly such a woman is condemned in every respect because of her sinful life. So what are these queens doing? They're doing what we conditioned souls generally do. When something happens to us that we don't like, we start thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking of so many reasons why we are justified to do what we want to do. So these queens are about to commit murder and they want to justify their murder. They want to make it seem like it's okay. So they're giving themselves these arguments. And all of us do that. When we are emotionally hurt, when we are having some negative emotion, these queens are going through this envy, lamentation, grief. I wasn't treated fairly. And it's true, they were not treated fairly. But I wasn't treated fairly, and they're angry, and they're envious, and they're grieving. And they want to hold on to this anger, and envy, and grief. And so they're giving themselves all these reasons to keep these emotions within their mind and body. They're saying, my husband's neglecting me. My co-wife, she's treating me like a servant. I'm condemned and sinful. And this is how the mind works. If we feel that someone disrespects us, if we feel that somebody has hurt us in some way, and we get these emotions going through our body, then we tell ourselves these stories so that we can hold on to these emotions. What, the, what is the devotee supposed to do when somebody dishonors us, and these queens have been dishonored, there's no question about it. Chitraketu acted wrongly. He dishonored them. What should they do with these emotions going through their bodies? Anybody have any idea? What are we supposed to do? Transform. Huh? Transform them. Okay. How would we transform them? Okay, that's a good strategy, but that may also give us another problem. Because here the queens are logically and philosophically giving themselves a good reason to feel angry and grieving and envious, yes? We can also try through logic and philosophy to try to give ourselves a good reason not to feel angry and envious and grieving. Well, everything is Krishna's desire. This must be my karma. You know, I should be nice to my husband even though he's not being nice to me. So they could use that. They could also use logic and philosophy to try to talk themselves out of their emotions. But what would that do? That simply pushes the emotions down. You understand? 
And this is the way we materialistic people, or I as a materialistic person, tend to act. When some strong negative emotions come, we tend to talk ourselves into keeping them, or we talk ourselves into repressing them. But what does Krishna say we should do? We should become free from attachment and aversion. He says, one does not, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear. Such a person conquers the modes of material nature. So far better if the queens had said, oh, envy, anger, grief has entered my mind and body. Well, that's natural. Krita Duti had the son and I didn't, and my husband is neglecting me. These are natural emotions. But I am not this body. I am not Chitraketu's queen. I am not Krita Duti's co-wife. I am not even a woman. I am not even a human. I am a soul. And these emotions, they will come and they will go. Like the ocean, that when the river comes, it just lets the river come. Or you can think of it like a tree, and the storm cloud comes, and it passes, and the tree remains tolerant. So the devotee neither holds on to these emotions in attachment, nor tries to push them away in aversion, but simply lets them come and go as an observer. Let's look at Prabhupada's purport to text 40. He says, as stated by Chanaka Pandit, Mata Yasya Grehe Nasti Varya Chapriyavadini Aranyam Tena Gantavyam Yat Arana Yam Tatagraham. A person who has no mother at home and whose wife does not speak sweetly should go to the forest. For such a person, living at home and living in the forest are equal. So if a householder doesn't have a mother at home and the wife is nasty, Shakespeare would call her a shrew, right? At that famous. You might as well go to the forest because your home is already a forest. Then Prabhupada says, similarly, for a woman who has no son, who is not cared for, cared for by her husbands, and whose co-wives neglect her, treating her like a maidservant, to go to the forest is better than to remain home. Sometimes it's not the co-wives, sometimes it's the in-laws. Right? You see this in some... Uh, my daughter-in-law was actually telling me that she knew of someone who married into an Indian family, and the in-laws were treating her like a maidservant. So she had no child, her husband was neglecting her, and the in-laws were treating her like a servant. And so indeed she left. So here there's... Uh, some advice given by Chanika Pandit and Chiru Prabhupada to these queens, and they're not going to take this advice. Uh, eventually they will, actually. Eventually they'll become renounced. Uh, but they're going to go through a lot more suffering first. So the advice to them is, if you cannot stay in the situation and be happy, then better you become renounced. If your situation is so miserable, then better you renounce your grihasta life. Now, of course, nowadays what this would mean to people is simply get into another grihasta life. 
right? So in, in 2019, people will say, so my grihasta life is miserable, my wife is always yelling at me, I don't have a mother, so I will leave this wife and find another one. Or, you know, I have no child, my husband is neglecting me, my in-laws are treating me like a servant, so I'll find a new husband. So this is what generally happens in 2019. Uh, we're not going to speak more about that, uh, because it's what happens in 2019, Hare Krishna. But what one should do is if one cannot stay in that situation and just simply be happy and equal poised, is one should go to the vana, one should go, or aranya, one should go to the forest, one should take up the vana prasta life. So actually everybody should renounce material life. If we want to go back to home, back to Godhead, we must renounce material life. There's no fudging on this. It's a must. Bhogaishwarya Krishna says, those who are attached to Bhogaishwarya, they cannot become determined in Krishna consciousness. There's no way around it. You can't say, well, I'm going to try to enjoy the world and I'm still going to fall in love with Krishna. Sorry, it's just not possible. But we have some options. One option is if your externals in, in the Grihasta Ashram are good. You have a good wife, a good husband, good parents, good in-laws, good children. You have a nice situation. You can stay in that situation and be renounced internally. And we see many examples like this in the Shastra. And Prabhupada says this, if everything is favorable, you can stay there, but internally you are renounced. And of course, this is the advice that Krishna gives Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. It's very interesting when Krishna says, Sarva Dharma Prichaja, Arjuna doesn't understand this to mean give up being a prince, give up ruling the government, give up being the battlefield, leave Draupadi and Subhadra, leave Abhimanyu and and, and just go in the forest. Of course, he did that later, when Pariket was grown. But he didn't understand that that's what it meant at that moment. What he understood was, do everything externally, be a grahasta, be a ksatriya, but internally be detached. Yes? Am I correct? Give up identifying as a grahasa. Give up identifying as a ksatriya. Give up dharma in that way. Not that I'm fighting because I love Draupadi, I love Subhadra, I love Avimanyu. I want the kingdom to go to my children or my nephews. And I hate Duryodhana. No, not like that. Without hatred, without love, in detachment, just as a service. So that is one way one can become renounced. Another way is if the externals are terrible, one can do this also. If your wife is always yelling at you, your husband neglects you, your maidservants make you like what Cinderella, your, you know, your relatives make you be a, a servant, you have no good children, you can still stay and also be internally renounced. Just like I'm reading right now in the Bhagavatam about Jad Bharat. 
Jed Bart was in that situation. After his parents died, he was taken care of by his stepbrothers and stepmother. And they very much mistreated him. They treated him not even like a servant. They gave him old food and worm-eaten food. They made him work in the hot sun all day. And he didn't leave. He stayed. He was willing to stay the rest of his life. He didn't care. Internally, he was detached. And how people treated him nicely, not nicely. It just didn't matter to him. Of course, he ended up leaving when he got kidnapped. But that's not relevant to this point. The point is, if everything's wonderful, you can stay and be detached inside. And if everything's terrible, one can stay and be detached inside. Then the other option is one actually leaves. And if everything's wonderful in Vihasta life, still one should leave approximately the age of 50. Again, practically speaking, nobody's doing this. Uh, But this is the idea that somewhere around age 50, one gives up. One gives up one's career. I mean, we have some concept all over the world that like in in our 60s, we should retire from career. So the age is a little older, but the concept is there. That you get to the point before old, old age. Huh? Before you get really, really old. So I'm in my 60s, so I'm old, but I'm not like old, old, old. You understand? Right? According to medical doctors, 85 is old, old. So the idea is before you get so old that you can't even walk and you can't think, and that you give up any kind of career, you give up your livelihood, you give up especially administrative management duties in the world, worrying about earning a living, and you give up family life. Uh, that one becomes celibate. And just focus on bhakti. So this is also advised. And this is advised if your family life is very nice or if your family life is not very nice. So we see many examples in the Bhagavatam of people who gave up family life that was very nice. Can you give me an example of someone who took Manaprasa they had a very, very nice family life? Bharat Maharaj. Bharat Maharaj, yes. Huh? What? Oh. Someone else, an example? Lord Chaitanya. Yes. He had Lakshmi Devi as his wife, and he had such a wonderful mother, Sachi Devi. King Priyavrata is another interesting example. He married Bahirshmati. He had another wife whose name isn't given. But he was very, very much in love with Bahirshmati. And it said that their love was constantly increasing. It was a, an extremely favorable Prahasta life. And he had wonderful, wonderful children. So a wonderful wife, wonderful children. But still, at a certain point, he said, no, time to give the kingdom to my children and to go to the forest. And then we have the example that if your household life is miserable, you can go to the forest. Which is Prabhupada's advice for these queens here, which again, they're not going to take at this point, which is too bad. If they took that advice, then we would not have this catastrophe coming up. 
Can we think of another example of people who, there was a problem and they renounced? Srila Prabhupada. Srila Prabhupada gave up his household life because his wife was, was a problem. Some other example. Well, in one sense, you could say Dhruva as a young boy, yes. Not as an older. In fact, Dhruva is an example of the opposite, where Dhruva had a very nice family life. And he renounced, even though his family life was very pleasing when he was older. But yet, Dhruva as a young boy. Father of King Vena. Yes, the father of King Vena, Anga where he said, I have such a bad son, I'm going to use this as an impetus to renounce. We have Maharaj Prickett, who was cursed. He could have counter-cursed, but instead he took, okay, I've been cursed. This is a good excuse to renounce. So I've noticed that many times people think that renunciation is only valid if your circumstances were good. And we find this with the Avanti Brahmana in the 11th canto where he had been a miser and basically his family threw him out. And he took advantage of the situation to take up renunciation. But he was very much mistreated by people. I mean, very much. If you read the descriptions of how terribly he was treated, it's almost unbelievable. But they were telling him, you're not a genuinely renounced person because you didn't leave a happy situation. Because the situation you left was unhappy. They say it's like sour grapes, right? We all know the Aesop's fable, the fox is jumping, jumping, jumping. He can't reach the grapes. And he says, oh, they are sour. So when people become renounced because it's a difficult situation, oftentimes that renunciation is not respected. People will say, well, you're not really renounced. You just had a miserable situation. But the fact is that having a miserable situation is one of the bona fide impetuses for taking up renounced life. And in the, in the end, it doesn't matter what the impetus is. It doesn't matter if the impetus is, I have a wonderful grahasta ashram and I feel fully satisfied, all my desires are fulfilled, and now I can leave it because I was fully satisfied. Like if you eat a very, very good meal and then you say, no, I don't want to eat anymore because I am satisfied. Or if you had a terrible meal and you walk away and say, I don't want to eat anymore because the meal was terrible. It doesn't matter. And it also doesn't matter whether externally one stays in a seeming position of enjoyment and being internally renounced or if one externally renounces. That also doesn't matter. Although we advise generally for people to externally renounce. Because there's always some danger if you stay in a situation of external enjoyment, you may not be as renounced internally as you think you are. So the advice is for everyone to externally renounce at a certain point. Although again, it's not absolutely necessary if one is able to be internally renounced. But all of us must give up our desire to enjoy this world. Our attachment, whether our attachment is to happiness 
and prosperity or our attachment here. The queens are maintaining an attachment to envy and grief. Attachment to negative emotions is just as damaging as attachment to positive ones. Those are the perversions of other rasas, yes? There's 12 rasas. One of them is grief. One of them is anger. So those are also forms of enjoyment. The queens here are enjoying their anger and their grief. They're enjoying it. They're justifying it. So we need to let go of trying to enjoy these different rasas in their perverted way in this world. Whether we are trying to enjoy, you know, friendship and society and love, or we're trying to enjoy comedy or wonder or anger or grief or whatever it is. Or we're trying to be averse to them. Thinking that we're going to be the controller of the material rasas, either by enjoying them or by pushing them away. And we should become instead absorbed in Krishna. And what the impetus is for us, it doesn't matter. If the impetus is we have a wonderful spouse and loving children, or if the impetus is our spouse neglects us and our in-laws mistreat us. It doesn't matter what the impetus is. The point is to become attached to Krishna. And frankly, we can use everything and anything as an impetus for that attachment to Krishna. We can see the wonderful things, the good things in life. If we have good health, if we have lots of money, if everybody treats us nicely, we can see that as an impetus to become attached to Krishna. And if our body is breaking and people are yelling at us and we're being mistreated and we're being cheated and neglected, we can use that as an impetus to surrender to Krishna. So that is what we must do. And not make the mistake of these... These examples are given in the Bhagavatam. We're given good examples and bad examples. And not make the mistakes that are being made here by... Uh, these personalities. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Yes? Thank you. Uh, does this mic go to the internet or do I still have to? It does. I don't have to repeat. Okay. Thank you for the lecture. I have a, a question uh, regarding renunciation. Uh, are there any uh, basic uh, psychological needs? that when they are not met, uh, make you, render you uh, incapable of uh, renunciation. So first they have to be met, and then a person will be able to renounce. Is there some basic must, psychologically, for a human being? That is a very deep question that you just asked. I think it was... It was I get many questions all over the world, and that was up there with one of the best. That was a very, very deep question. So is there some kind of need that without having met that renunciation is not possible? I'm I'm seeing people that try to renounce. I'm sorry. Don't forget the people on the internet. Uh What is... That's why you're using the microphone. Sometimes I see people that that are emotionally very, I mean, including myself probably, but I see they they're emotionally very very starting somehow, and they try to renounce and they don't do it properly. I see they are going to. No, what you were saying is very is very important, and 
Your point is why that in a civilized society most people get married and they are supposed to have a satisfying and fulfilling marital life. So if we were to recreate a civilized society, most people would get married before they were 20 or 22 years old. Most people would marry when they are teenagers. And then they would have the support of their family and the community and the society to have a happy marriage life. So that by the time they got old enough to renounce, they felt that their psychological needs were satisfied. And they'd be able, if their mind would say, oh, I want, they'd say, oh, you already had that. You already had that. And I, I personal experience that when this works properly, it's very powerful. That when the mind says, you know, oh, don't you want a man, don't you want a woman, oh, I already had that. It had good things, it had bad things. I, I, don't, I don't need it anymore. Like they say, been there, seen that, done that. They say, been there, seen that, done that. I, in other words, I've already experienced that. I was, uh, many years ago, I was flying, um, it was on Turkish Air, which I just flew on yesterday also. But anyway, they had an advertisement for the airline. And it was showing some, I, I assume they were famous people, I don't know who they are. But these famous people flying Turkish airlines to all different parts of the planet. They were showing on the movie in the airplane. And I'm looking at this and thinking, I went there, and I've been there, and I've been there, and I've been there. I thought, oh, I haven't been there, and I've been there. And I thought, I'm finished now seeing this planet. I thought, now I have to go to some other planet. So, yes, it's a fact that when our needs are psychologically satisfied at the proper time, in the proper way, it is much, much, much easier to take up renunciation because the mind is peaceful. That's true, and therefore this is the system of ashram. But we also find that that is not absolute. We find that those in the Bhagavatam and in Chaitanya Charitamrita who renounce the world not when they reached a point of satisfaction, but because some conditions were there that showed them you're not going to be satisfied. If these queens were intelligent, they would understand, we married the wrong guy. This man is not a responsible good husband. He's neglecting us. We didn't do anything wrong at all. He's neglecting us. This is an indication from the Lord that we are not meant to be happy in family life, in this life. In fact, that's the conclusion they come to later after they kill the child and so forth, they come to this conclusion, this is just not our karma to have a happy married life. And they do become renounced. So one can have one's psychological needs satisfied in that way. That is also possible. 
Now we should say something. It's this, uh, there's one gentleman that I know who's taken up Krishna consciousness secretly because he's a very famous Catholic monk. And uh, he's an author of many books. He speaks to thousands of people. He's very famous within the Catholic community internationally. But he's also a Hare Krishna devotee. So I remember when I was first writing him, and he told me that he lives in a rural property with his family. So family, I'm thinking, means wife, children. And then I said to him, but I thought you are a monk. He said, well, this is my family property. My mother is living there, my brother's family in that way. And we were having some conversation, and I said, so how is it that you became a monk? He said, for me, celibacy is not a discipline. It is a charism. So a charism in the Catholic tradition means a gift. And I was thinking very deeply about what is the difference between celibacy as a discipline and celibacy as a gift. And I thought celibacy or any kind of renunciation, could be renunciation of money or whatever it may be, renunciation of a career, if it's done as a discipline, is always dangerous. It's risky. It's dependent somewhat on willpower. And we see in the, in the Shastra, people who take up austerity as a discipline are liable to fall. Yes? What is the main example we always get? Vishwamrita. He took up austerity and celibacy as a discipline, and he fell. Twice. Once to lust with Manika and once to anger with Rama. But those who take up renunciation as a gift, they don't fall. So whether one becomes renounced because one's psychologically satisfied, or whether one becomes renounced that in spite of being psychologically not satisfied, one sees that this is the will of God. It is the will of God that I am not meant to have this desire satisfied in this life. Who of us gets all of our psychological needs fully satisfied materially? Please show me this person. I have not met this person. All of us have some, especially in Kali Yuga, maybe in other ages people did, but in Kali Yuga, we will have some physiological, psychological, emotional, intellectual need that does not get satisfied despite our great efforts to satisfy it. Am I correct? Does all of us have something here that we like... Why don't I get that? And if we can see, this is the will of the Lord. So my advice always to people, if they want to take out renunciation, is to ask for a gift. To ask for the shakti. Not to try to take it up as a discipline. But to be empowered. And Krishna Das Kavirash says that for one who meditates on Sri Chaitanya, even very difficult things become very easy. And if you don't meditate on Lord Chaitanya, even very easy things become very difficult. Very often, I mean it happened again recently, but it happens to me very often, 
that somebody will come to me and say, I don't know if I should marry or be renounced. Usually such persons are already in their late 30s or 40s. Sometimes they've already been married previously. And I always say, go to the Lord and you ask. If I need to be married, please send me the proper person and let it be in Krishna consciousness. And if I'm going to be renounced, please give it to me as a gift. But I, I have a, a, you know, much direct personal experience that renunciation has to be given as a gift. Otherwise, it is unstable. Even being given as a gift, one can misuse a gift. I mean, one can throw away a gift. We still have some personal responsibility. And when Krishna gives renunciation as a gift, it doesn't matter if on the material level some things were not satisfied. And if we insist, I have to get all my material needs satisfied before I renounce, I don't know, it may take a long, long time, especially at this point in human history, at this point on the planet. It, it, you know, it, it may be bhagunam jammanam If one thinks, you know, I need to have closure for all my material desires, I have to have closure on all the relationships I've had for the last 300 lifetimes. You know, then we become like Amba. She didn't want to take up Krishna consciousness until she had been the cause of the death of Bhishma. She had to have that satisfied and so she wasted three lifetimes in this rubbish. But I'm very, very glad you asked that. It was a very significant and meaningful question. So it's after nine. Should I stop now? Take another question or stop? Did anybody else have another question? Yes. There's probably a switch somewhere. Yeah, there is. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay so my question is um, you mentioned also Bharat Maharaj. So um, I'm wondering, like Bharat Maharaj, he was already on the stage of Baba, but he fell anyway. So I was wondering, why did it happen? Well, that question is answered in that part of the Bhagavatam itself. It's at the end of the story. Prabhupada said it happened because when the deer came, that Bharat did not consult with his guru. That he, he acted independently. And if you think about it, Bharat was the king. He was a ksatriya. And his mood as the king was to protect the citizens. Unlike Chitraketu, who protected the queen who had a son and didn't protect the other queens. So Bharat was a king who protected all of his citizens equally. So he also felt that he was supposed to protect the deer. So he, was, he retained some of this abhiman, some of this ego of being a ksatriya. He hadn't fully let it go. And, and he, but the, the main reason is that he didn't consult with his guru. That's not explained. What's explained is that he was at Pulaha Ashram. He was at the Ashram, but he didn't consult his guru. I mean, that's the... We are supposed to take the protection of the other devotees. You know, the society of devotees. We're supposed to inquire confidentially and hear confidentially. And even at a very high stage, there can be some... There's still some pride 
in bhava. As I say, even if we're given a gift, we can throw it away. It's not, it's not that, there's, that we ever become a robot and that protection is absolutely guaranteed no matter what we do. You know, if someone gives you a gift of armor and you, you put it in the trash, it's like, you know, at initiation, we're given our beads, we're told to chant 16 mouths, but if you don't chant your 16 mouths, what can you, what can you do? So the, the possibility is, is all, we, we always have the choice to turn from Krishna. There's, we, it's, not that, it's not that the residents of the spiritual world lose that option. The option is always there. And I see that that story with Bart is to remind us the option is always there. We should never get to a place where we think, oh, you know, I can do whatever I want. But we, sh- we should take care of our relationship with Krishna very carefully. I mean, one does get to a point where fall down has to be very intentional. You know, for a beginning devotee, fall down can happen, you know, at least on a subtle level, a hundred times a day, without them even realizing it. Like, like one devotee said, you know, Prabhupada, sometimes we fall into Maya. He said, no, you're always in Maya, sometimes you fall into Krishna. So, you know, if, if for a neophyte devotee, just even following the regular principles, chanting their rounds, waking up early, you know, it's so hard and they may fall from it over and over again. At a certain point, that all that becomes just like breathing. It's all just automatic. Even at the stage of, of ruchi, one's mind is, is, you know, still can be brought to material things, but at a sakti, one's mind is automatically going to Krishna. But that... You know, so as one advances, it has to be a more and more and more deliberate, conscious decision to fall. But one can still do that. One doesn't lose the ability to do that. Is that okay? But it's not described that there was some sort of psychological lack in him at all. There was, there was some, some little, little pride. I'm the king. I, I know what to do. I don't need to ask anybody. Yes, and this will be the last one. Is that okay? Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the lecture. Regarding this psychological needs that Olga uh, is asking, uh, once you mentioned in the lecture that uh, sometimes ladies have this basic biological need to become mothers, to become, to have a family, and you said that uh, a desire to have a family is not a simple desire. And also Prabhupada uh, mentioned that uh, ladies in uh, society, in Russian society, should be protected um, as you know, from husband and should be kind of uh, supported in this way. So, um, how can we understand um, when, when this desire to have family sometimes in a society treated as if uh, 
the woman has a presumptive syndrome or something. Oh, that's very unfortunate. I mean, I think when Prabhupada talked about establishing Varnashram, Varnashram, the ashram part, is a recognition that our basic biological drives are to have a place in the same society. To, to denigrate somebody, it's like denigrating somebody for wanting to eat. You know, saying, how, how can you possibly want to eat? What is wrong with you? You know, it's ridiculous. If, if we had a good, stable, God-conscious society, then most people, most of the time, would have these basic biological and psychological needs taken care of at the proper time. And that's what Krishna wants. Also our need for a career, a satisfying career. If we had a sane society, a God-conscious society, people would be established in a career by the time they were 20 years old. A career that was aligned with their nature and giving them honest work. And it's, it's a great misfortune that we don't have a society where there's Varna Dharma, where people have a satisfying career at a young age, and where there's Ashram Dharma, where people's natural biological needs at the proper place in the life cycle are being taken care of. It's not just a desire to have a child. It's a desire when you're old to have a peaceful place to just sit and meditate and read Shastra. And it's a desire when you're young to be able to learn actually valuable things in a peaceful atmosphere. So it's the desire to, to be a brahmachari, to be able to actually study and be maintained by the society when one's young and learn something valuable. Then when, when one's young, the desire to have some income and some home and a spouse and children and a satisfying career and the desire in midlife to move away from things and let things go and travel and the desire at the end of life to just be peaceful and prepare for death and engage oneself in purification. Each of these desires at the different stages of life are actually part of our biology and psychology. And very frankly, we don't facilitate any of them. It's not that we don't just facilitate women having babies. We don't facilitate retiring. We don't facilitate purification at the end of life. We don't facilitate young people engaged in study. We basically do a lousy job completely in all of these things. So we are very, very lucky that bhakti is independent. Bhakti is independent. If your life materially is wonderful, if your life materially is terrible, if your life materially is somewhere in between, you can still engage in Mahaprabhu's movement and Kevala Anandakanda and become an ecstasy and go back to God. Jai Haribol. But we also do have a mission as followers of Srila Prabhupada to try to create a sane society. That is part of our mission. Because unless we create a sane society, asking people just to take up bhakti from any position is very difficult. And, and many of us in our Hare Krishna movement struggle with this a lot. So this is... Just like I was praising the temple room, and I noticed you changed the heating system also. The heaters used to be over there. 
So, you know, you made a much more favorable temple, a much nicer floor, wonderful pictures, the heating system. So, you don't have to do that. We could all just chant Hare Krishna in the middle of the street. But that, you know, that's more difficult. But if someone says, oh, you want to have a room with a roof? Why aren't you satisfied just chanting Hare Krishna in the middle of the street? So, this is... It's not very reasonable. Thank you very much, Shiva Prabhupada Ki Jai.